As you're opening to Acts chapter 11, uh, verse 19 to 30 is what we're going to do today. A couple introductory remarks, okay? Acts chapter 11. Um, We know from history, we've been saying as we go through the book of Acts and look at the early movement of the church, that that Christianity was a small movement begun by uneducated, socially sort of marginalized group of people that within 300 years conquered the most powerful empire known to man. And Christianity did it, not as an institution, not as religion. Christianity did it as this vibrant faith by a group of people. And one of the reasons why Christianity was able to do it without military force or cultural might was because of the radical inclusive nature. Everybody say inclusive. Inclusive. Everybody say inclusive. Inclusive nature of the Christian faith. Christian faith comes along and unlike other religions at the time, comes up with this radical inclusiveness and literally said anybody can come. Anybody. Anybody. And the sheer force of that was one of the main reasons why Christianity won and conquered the Roman Empire. Here's a quote from a church historian. Christianity's success is to be found in its inclusiveness. More than any of its competitors, it attracted all races and classes. Judaism never quite escaped its racial bonds. Christianity, however, gloried in its appeal to Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian. The philosophies never really won the allegiance of the masses either. They appealed primarily to the educated. Christianity, however, drew the lowly and the unlettered, yet also developed a philosophy which commanded the respect of the many who were educated. Christianity, too, was for both sexes, whereas two of its main rivals were primarily for men. The church welcomed both the rich and the poor, in contrast with that the mystery cults were usually for the means, for the people with means. Initiation into these mystery cults very expensive. No other took in so many groups and strata of society. Jesus Christ from the very get-go says that the gospel is for everyone, everywhere. Everyone, every inclusive nature of the Christian faith. Now check this out though. It took the early believers a long time to wrap their brains around that, right? Wrap their minds around that, right? Part of the reason is, think about it, these are men <laughs> who were reared in such a way that they would wake up each morning and they would pray this prayer. God, I thank you that I'm a Jew and not a Gentile. I thank you that I'm a man and not a woman. And I thank you that I'm, a, I'm free and not a slave. They were conditioned to think that your class, your race, or your gender has something to do with whether God accepted you, blessed you, so on and so forth. Christianity and the gospel comes, of course, and just blows it out of the water and says, it doesn't matter who your pedigree is, your race, ethnicity, culture. At the end of the day, Christianity is about... Grace, nothing but grace, amen? All grace. Regardless of your pedigree, race, ethnicity, culture, class, social standing. Now, Jesus, just to make sure, says in two places, Acts 1.8, he says, go, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. That included everybody. And just in case they didn't get it, Acts chapter 2, Jesus Christ, Pentecost, Holy Spirit falls down. And instead of one language being spoken, there are multiple languages spoken. Why? That was Jesus, God's way of saying, no one culture, no one language has leg up on anybody else. At the foot of the cross, everybody is equal. Okay? Everybody's equal. Now, as the movement continues forward, we come to a very, very important place in the book of Acts. We come to a place where the gospel now, check this out, up until now, it's primarily relegated to Jews. And then beyond that, you know, one Samaritan there, and then an Ethiopian eunuch there. And last two weeks you saw Cornelius, a Roman centurion. But for the first time now, the gospel is going to go wild. 
Gospel is going to go global. God's going to go, God's good gospel is going to go corporate. Gospel is going to go beyond Jerusalem, Samaria, and then adventures into the ends of the earth. Now, there's going to be some bumps along the road, and we'll get to that, okay? But as we come to our chapter today, Acts 11, we see for the first time a massive conversion take place in a totally pagan Gentile city called Antioch. Verse 19, look at that with me. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Again, a hard time getting their brains around this. Some of them, verse 20, however, thank God for these men, from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Significance, huge, for the first time the gospel goes. And thank God for these, I'll call them mavericks, okay? Thank God for these thinking outside the box types of people, okay? Because up until now, their brethren and their folks have been like, no, gospel to the Jews. Maybe, maybe Gentiles, if they're God-fearing. But for the first time, these guys are like, yo, the gospel is for everybody, everywhere. Even like hardcore pagan Greeks. And they go out and they witness to them. By the way, did you notice? Check this out. None of their names are written. We don't even know who they are. I think that's just so cool. Do you know why? It could be argued, if they had not ventured out, where would the trajectory of the church have been? A movement that had been primarily relegated to Jews. These men take a huge risk, venture out of their ethnocentric, cultural sort of elitist minds and say, the gospel is for everyone, and they go out. And their name's not even, I just think that's cool. They just obeyed, faithful, God uses them. Amazing change in the church, right? There's two things, though, about their ministry that I, wanted to, I want you to notice. Number, number one is the scope of it. Again, for the first time, there's massive conversion. A large group of people coming to know Christ. Not just one isolated individual, okay? And also the audience. Again, the audience is who? For the first time, the gospel comes to hardcore, un, completely unaware of the Bible, Old Testament, Jesus, Messiah, any of those concepts. And the gospel is preached to them, the audience. Now, here's what I want you to take notice. You'll notice from here on out, whenever somebody preaches or shares the message of Jesus, the message will change. It's no longer contextualized to an Old Testament Jewish audience. So from now on in sermons, you no longer hear about Jesus, the hope of Israel. Why? Gentiles are like, hope of Israel? We didn't realize that Israel had any sense of hope. What? There's no longer talk of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. Now, the gospel is contextualized. It's so much so, I, I, check this out. Um, well, where does it say? News of the uh, Jerusalem hand was with them. People believed and turned to the Lord. News of the years of Jerusalem. They said, oh, no, 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 verse 24. You know verse 24 is? There verse 24. He was such a good man for the Holy Spirit. There a number of people. Sorry, I'm just reading to myself. I'm just reading to myself. The gospel is contextualized. When the gospel is preached, the Bible says, and they talked about the Lord Jesus. The word Lord, curious. In Greek, it was a simple generic term that was used to deities in their cults and their religions. So there isn't divine significance given to Jesus. The contextualizing the gospel, significance. You and I need to learn how to contextualize the gospel. This is so, so huge. What I see sometimes that saddens my heart is Christians get their big old Bibles to somebody who's never been to church, didn't grow up in church, doesn't know anything about the Bible, and start opening the Bible and going, and the Bible says, and the Bible says, anybody? And what happens? What do they respond? How do they respond? They go, what? They go, I don't even believe the Bible. What do you do then? Here's my point. The Bible absolutely is God's living word. It can penetrate any heart. But there's wisdom and discernment knowing who to share 
biblically the gospel of Jesus with who not to. Does that make sense? It's common sense, isn't it? Now, if you are somebody who is wanting to open up the Bible and talk about Jesus, you know what you need to do? You need to do it in community. You need to do it with them. Whenever I tell non-Christians, say, read the book of John. Christians, we love doing that. Read the book of Matthew. And they go and they read it, and they're like, I'm confused, like three verses in. Right? What are all these names in Matthew? Why are there like so many names? What? You need to read it with them in community, explaining, articulating. When you meet somebody who has no sense of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus, you need to be able to contextualize the gospel in such a way that they would be able to understand. Does that make sense? Now, somebody asked me, are we going to learn how to do that? Are we going to talk about this in the book of Acts? Yes, yes, yes. People come and go, uh, I just get stumped when somebody goes, so what do you believe? Uh, how do I, how do I? And they come from all different kinds of backgrounds. We're going to spend at least two Sundays in the fall talking about how do we articulate the gospel to both completely unchurched, somebody who doesn't know the Bible at all, as well as someone who grew up in church perhaps and has some knowledge of Jesus but doesn't. We contextualization. Does that make sense? Just want to point that out. Highlight that, okay? All right, let's go on. Verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem and saw that, and, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the evidence. Everybody say evidence. Evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and he encouraged. Everybody say encouraged. Encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. That is just so amazing there. We're going to get to that verse. Disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Okay, Barnabas. Let's talk about Barnabas. He is sent to Antioch from Jerusalem for two reasons, among others. Number one, he's essentially uh, sent for accountability. He's sent because there's this movement happening in the Gentile world. People at this time, again, brains around gospel. Gentiles, really? No. So Barnabas is sent to say, hey, you're one of our leaders. Will you make sure it's a legit move of God? Make sure it's not some cultish thing that's happening. Make sure they know the truth and so on and so forth. So Barnabas goes to actually for provide accountability. Make sure that it's a legitimate, sincere movement of God. Second reason, though, this is huge. I'm going to park right here and spend a little time with y'all. The Bible says he encouraged them. Barnabas is called a son of encouragement throughout the book of Acts, right? And I'm going to get to that in a moment. But encouragement comes in a number of ways. And this is one of the ways encouragement came. The word literally means to exhort. So it's not there, there. It's press, exhorted them to remain true to the Lord. What does that mean? Barnabas is sent amongst hundreds perhaps and a throng of brand new Christians, brand new Christians, bright-eyed brand new Christians. And he is sent there to do what? Press on. Don't give up. Hang in there. Hey, if things get hard, I'll be there for you. We'll pray with you. He is sent there to exhort, to challenge, to affirm, to encourage these brand new Christians to not give up and to continue in the faith. Let me ask you something. Is it important for brand new Christians to have that in their lives? Let me ask you a question. Is it important for Mature Christians to have that in their lives. Exhortation. Why? Here's sort of a counterintuitive thing you may never thought about, but let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. Christian life, genuine Christian faith, is a battle. It's a war. It's an intense struggle. Let me put it this way. Sign of a genuine vital faith in a Christian is the amount of battle struggling, wrestling, as much as it is inner peace. Somebody immediately goes, come on. 
Christian life, it's about inner peace. That's how you know you're connected with God. Romans chapter 5, therefore God is reconciled. There's peace with God. I have peace. Philippians chapter 3, God gives us peace that surpasses all understanding. So I have peace that guards my heart. Isn't the ultimate sign of Christian life peace? Half the story. The other half of a genuine, vital, Christian, living faith is that there is a battle. There is a struggle. There is a warring. There's an intensity in your heart. Why? Let me put it this way. When you become a Christian, there is a battle from within as well as battle from without. Battle from within. Before you became a Christian, you lived for who? Before you became a Christian, who called the shots? The Bible is very clear, folks, and you don't, you know, experience tells us too. Before we become a Christian, we are the Lord of our lives. We rule how we want to live. We want to do what we want to do. We answer to nobody. <laughs> this week, my son, four years old, Parker, God bless him. He said two things that just made my wife and I just stop in our tracks. One, he was acting pretty, you know, naughty, right? So my wife and I tried to discipline him. And guess what he says? He says, mom and dad, you're no boss of me. And with a smile, thank you very much. (laughs) You're no boss of me. Four years old, you're no boss of me, right? And I'm thinking, who told you that, Parker? Because you're not going to be friends with him or anymore, right? (laughs) Because I don't remember reading in some books, you know, because normally he memorizes books, you know. I don't remember any book that said, you're no boss of me. The other thing he says, I'm driving him from school, right? Picked him up. We're driving from school. I'm like, How's your day? How's it going? Trying to talk to my son. He says to me, Daddy, just leave me alone. Now, you and I go, oh, you know what, though? It spoke truth. Because isn't that, isn't that what we do? Now, check this out. When you become a Christian, does that all of a sudden just end? When you become a Christian, does this all of a sudden go away? Then we put God at bay, and we say, God, leave me alone. God, let me be. God, you know. Does that end? No. If anything, when you become a Christian, the struggle, what? Becomes more intense. When you're a Christian, and you're willing to live your life, submitted to God, yielded to God, for His will, His will only, don't tell me there's no struggle. There's an intense battle and struggle for your soul. You tracking? Battle without. When you become a Christian, the Bible says you are delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Literally, before you become a Christian, you are slave to sin, slave to Satan, slave to his agenda, his issues. I know that's kind of freaky, but it's true. When you become a Christian, God says he delivers you out of that, and you're brought to the kingdom of the son he loves. All of a sudden, you begin to enter his rule. You're about his agenda. You're about his issues. You're about his priorities. Now, when that happens, does Satan just play over? Or play over? Does he just roll over and play dead? Does Satan just go, oh, well, what, that's just... That's just too bad, I guess. What does he do? He says, oh no, there is now a mark on you. And he says, Satan says, I'm not going to just roll over and play dead. There is now a war inside your soul for you. Do you know this? So here's what happens to a Christian. When you become kingdom, all of a sudden you become alert and awake to the realities like, I serve a different king. I serve a different Lord. And there is a battle. There is a war for my heart, for my soul. There is something going on around me that says, wants to distract me, to derail me from following God. There's an awareness and alertness to being spiritual. Let me give it this way. I'm a father of two. I have a four-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter. You already know about Parker. I've been inside the delivery room for both births. Okay? Do you know what happens when a child is born? 
Does anybody know what happens? Let me tell you something, okay? It's not calm, pleasant, you know? It's not. It is chaotic. It is hectic, you know? <laughs> Guys are like, get out of the way. You're useless, you know? I'm like, but I'm here to help. You're not helping. You're useless. And what happens when the child is born? Check that. When a child is born, child is born, it is violent. It's chaotic. When a baby is born, listen, when a baby is born into new life and he wants to take his first breath, do you know what that looks like? That baby comes out and there's shaking, there's movement. When that baby comes out and that first cry ah, happens, you know that there is a battle. There is a battle for that life. If a baby comes out and simply says, nobody in the room goes, what a laid back baby. Isn't that a laid back What a temperament. People go, no, there's something wrong with him. There's something wrong with him. There's no sign of life. There's no sign of life. Do something. Slap his butt, move his arms, do something. Why? Sign of birth, new birth means there's life, there's violence, there's shaking, there's alertness, there's an awake. My question to you, Christian, if that's true, how is your spiritual life now? Is your You know what sin is? Sin is a narcotic. It lulls you to sleep. Oh, well, you know, same old, same old. Well, you know, there's always tomorrow. Pleasure fun is what I live for. Or is there an alertness, an awakening? Who am I talking to this morning? I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me. What does your spiritual life look like? If a sign of vital health, vital life in the Christian life is one of battle within and battle without along with peace. If you're a Christian who gets up and there's been no battle, there's been no warring, there's been no struggle for your soul and for loyalty with God, where are you today? Are you awake? Are you alive? Are you alive? Or are you asleep? Are you dead? Are you numb? You want to fight? No, I'm not saying you want to fight. I'm saying, do you want a fight? <laughs> Make it clear. Like, you want to fight? No. Do you want a fight? You want to fight? Try doing this. Some of you, try doing this. Try going home and starting tomorrow, go, God, for the next 30 days, I want to give my all to you and make you my priority no matter what. Tell me how your week goes next week when you come back. You want to fight on your hands? You want to fight on your hands for some of you? You know what? How many of you could... How many of you could... I've been in Hawaii too long. How many of you could empathize with this? You haven't been in the Word. I'm being churchy here. You haven't read the Bible in a while. And you want to get back. How many of you guys know what that's like? You know what that... For me, it's not like, oh, you know, I haven't read the Bible in a while. I I guess... You know what it's like for me? It's like, oh. Anybody? It's like, oh, why is it so hard? Do you ever think about that? Why is it so hard? Just crack it open and just read it. Why is it so hard? If you haven't prayed in a while, try praying consistently. Why? Christianity is a battle. It's a fight. Are you alive? Are you alive? Where are you today? The reason why Barnabas is sent for a whole year and Saul comes. That first year, imagine what the spiritual, vi- the, the spiritual vital life of the young believers is like. 
By the way, can I just add two things? When we ask folks to accept Jesus, follow Jesus, you guys know how we do it. Turn all the lights on, open your eyes, everybody. We have to come over. And then most importantly, I say, I need now you church to come up front and join them. I don't just do that because it's like nice and it's comforting. You know why I do that? That brother, that sister that comes up here has no chance without community. Their souls and their hearts are going to be absolutely in battle that week, that month. Secondly, though, along with that, if you're a Christian, are you in community? Because you can't do this on your own. Are you in community? Do you know people? Are there people that are asking hard questions? Are you, are you in community with people that you can go, you know what? I can't even open the Bible. I just, I mean, it's like, the, it's like climbing Mount Everest. Can you help me? So you have brothers and sisters that come alongside of you and do it with you. Are you alive? Are you alive? Are you awake? The other thing about Paul that's striking, and, and, and I'll, get, I'll get into this uh, a little bit more towards the end. You know, there's going to be an inseparable link between Paul and Barnabas. And it began, do you remember, in Acts chapter 9. Barnabas encouragement. This is so powerful for me. You know, remember, Paul gets converted, right? And Paul wants to come to Jerusalem and prove to the apostles and disciples that he's legit. His conversion is real. He wants to walk alongside them. Nobody wants to be near him. People are like, you killed Christians, bro. We don't want anything to do with you. Nobody would stick up for Paul. Nobody would come along and say, what does Paul do? What does Barnabas do? Barnabas took his neck out. Because he's respected by the apostles. And he says, let me bring you. He brings Saul this murder of violent, persecuted Christians, to the apostles, and he tells them, Barnabas does, Paul's conversion story, in a sense gives them legitimacy. Do you know what Paul essentially did? Uh, Barnabas essentially did for Paul that made him another encourager that is so powerful for today. He essentially said to Paul, and I think Paul would remember this for the rest of his life, he had somebody in his life that basically said to him, even if nobody does, I believe in you. Even if nobody does, I believe in you. I believe in you so much that I'm going to bring you to Antioch, and I want you to help me teach, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Can anybody, I just wonder, can anybody in here relate to the power of knowing somebody believes in you? I don't know. Is that, is that a human trait that you could relate to? Can anybody in here, anybody, any soul relate to the power of life-transforming grace when somebody comes and says, I don't care if nobody does, I believe in you. Anybody? I share this, you guys. When I was 22, 23 in ministry, up and coming, rising, blah, blah, blah. Major, major mistake, moral failure. Nobody wanted to, nobody wanted to touch me. Nobody wanted to ask me. Nobody, nothing, nothing. I thought my ministry life was over, over. Find something else to do. I don't know, sell used cars or something. It was at that time I got a phone call from a pastor in Guam, some tiny little line. And he says, hey, man, I want you to come and actually, I want you to do ministry with me. I said, me? You sure? Me? Me? No. He goes, no, 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 you, you. I said, do you know what I've done? Yeah, I know what you've done. I want you to come. Get on the next flight. He restored me for a year and a half. And the only thing he did was instill, I still think I can use you. Come back to Chicago. Nobody, 25, 20, nobody wants to invite me to be a pastor of their church. Nobody, you know. There's a guy named David Yang, who was a pastor of a Korean church called Antioch Bible Church. And I'm hoping he'll hear this podcast because I'm meaning to track him down and thank him. He calls me up and says, you know what? We need a... We need somebody to help lead worship in our church. Uh, we can't pay. It's not a staff position, but would you be willing? I said, you sure you want me to? Me? Sure. He says, yeah. 
Are you sure, David? I don't, I don't, I don't, yeah, you. Can I tell you, if it weren't for these two people who in the pits didn't look at me, when nobody wanted, looked at me basically and said, I believe in you, I'm going to give you a chance. It could be the difference between me being out there doing something and me standing in front of you today, preaching God's word. So real quick application. Do you recognize that maybe where you're at is so that to that child, to that kid, to that coworker, to your family, where you're at, maybe, just maybe, God has you there because you are the vessel to whom God communicates. I believe in you. Do some of you guys need to maybe go home today and make a phone call, maybe a text or email somebody and saying, I know this is hard for me because you've hurt me, but you know what? I believe in you. I believe you can be restored. I think Paul will remember this for the rest of his life. And outside of Jesus and God, somebody said, who's the most significant person in your life? I think Paul would have said, Barnabas, when nobody wanted to. Barnabas, encouragement. The one last thing about Paul, uh, Barnabas. You notice in that same text, he invites Saul to come. You got to understand the setting, okay? Barnabas goes to Antioch, okay? He's like a rock star. I'm serious. He's got thousands of adoring new believers, right? And they're like, Barnabas, oh, Barnabas, oh, Barnabas. Every word that comes up, Barnabas, eating it up. You know, Barnabas, you're the greatest thing, you know, greatest preacher. You're the only preacher, but you're the greatest preacher, you know. There are all these things. Barnabas is adoring people all over him. And yet, what does he do? He looks around and he goes, you know what? My ability to minister here is limited. I need to go find somebody who's more talented, more gifted, more cosmopolitan in this city. I know that guy. His name is Saul. And he goes and gets him. And what does he do? He steps out of the way. He enables Paul to rise into leadership. Prayer leaders, real quick, and I'll move on. You cannot do this unless daily your prayer is, and God works in your heart in such a way that you say, God, may I decrease so that you might, why? Increase. God, may I decrease so that you might increase. God, may I decrease so that you might increase. Leaders, when's the last time you prayed that prayer? God, help me so that I might decrease so that you might increase. What did Paul do? He encouraged them. What did Paul see? Let's talk about that. This is the powerful part. And you can't really get it from the text. By the way, for those of you that are interested, read books, anything written by Rodney Starks, who is sort of a historian expert in the early first 300 years of the Christian uh, movement, especially in urban settings. And he writes extensively about this as well as a couple other historians. What did Barnabas see? Let me tell you a little bit about Antioch. You ready? Antioch in the Roman Empire, third largest city next to Rome, Alexandria. Okay? About five, 600,000 people population. It's 20 times larger than Jerusalem. Okay? It is a multi-ethnic, multicultural city. Okay? One of the few in that time. Amazingly cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic, multicultural city. Okay? It had 18 different, check this out, ethnic quarters. Ethnic quarters. Okay? Here's what Barnabas would have seen. You would have gone to Antioch. Okay? You would have walked in. You would have been like, hey, what's this wall inside the city? What's this wall? Oh, that's where the Chinese folks live. Okay. Ethnic quarter for Chinese. Hey, what's this wall? Oh, that's where like some 15,000, 20,000 Jewish people live. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, what's this wall? Well, that's where the Africans live. Here's a city about Antioch. It was built by a guy named Seleucus, who was one of the generals of Alexander. And he built it in honor of his father, whose name was Antiochus, hence the name. And here's what Seleucus did. And it was kind of unique. He built a wall outside the city of Antioch to protect the inhabitants of of Antioch. But he also, a city of 18 different ethnicities and races and more, what he did was, 
He built walls inside the city. He built fortresses inside the city. Why? To not just keep out and keep in the different ethnic cultural groups. But here's what often happened. You're at the marketplace. And you're walking down. And some other dude from some other ethnic racial group comes and he gives you a wrong look. That's all it took was wrong look. And as a result, hundreds of people could potentially die. It was that kind of racial animosity. A wrong gesture. That's the kind of environment that Antioch City was among other cities. So what does Seleucus do? He says, I don't want a riot. I don't want an ethnic cultural uprising that will wipe everybody in my city. I want there to be some semblance of peace. So he built fortresses and walls inside the city walls. Here's what Barnabas saw. You ready? This is why he came running and other people came to see. For the first time ever, first time ever, people were coming out of their ethnic quarters. People were coming out of ethnic quarters and they were entering as various different cultural, ethnic, racial groups, into homes, into other places to worship together. For the very first time ever, people from different ethnic, racial groups, representing different racial ethnicities, were coming together, breaking down dividing walls, breaking down fortresses and worshiping together. Why does the Bible say it was there that the first time, for the first time they called Christians, they didn't call themselves Christians. Other people labeled them Christians. Why? Up until that time, your religion had to do with your culture. Your faith had to do with your race. Your religion had to do with your family, your clan, your upbringing. So if you were a Jew, well, then you were, of course you were part of the Judaism. If you're a Greek, you believe the Greek religion, Romans, Roman religion. Up until that time, all the Christians were Jews. But for the first time, these people, not bound by their cultural, racial, ethnic, whatever, these people were coming and meeting together. So people looked at them and said, wait a minute, what kind of faith is this? Wait a minute, what kind of faith? It can't be Jewish religion because there's non-Jews. It can't be Greek religion because they're non-Greeks. It can't be Christians for the first time. Let me tell you. Let me put it in the starkest, uh, let me put it in the, in, in, hopefully in, in the clearest terms, and then I'll draw some implications. This multi-ethnic, multi-gathering, this multi-ethnic, multi-ethnic, breaking down, dividing walls gathering didn't become just a result of conversion. You know, people became saved from all different cultures. So as a result, they got together. It became the reason why people believe the gospel. People looked at these group of people and said, there's got to be something to this. What is it? The multi-ethnic, multi-racial, breaking down, dividing walls, gospel. That message was embodied in who they were. Let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. You and I, as kingdom community, don't just possess the gospel. You know, we've got the good news. Let's articulate to you. You and I are the gospel. We are the gospel. Yes, we possess the goodness of the gospel, who Christ is and what he is on the cross. But we not just possess, we are the gospel. We are by who we are declaring what Christ has done. Amen? Are you tracking with me? By the way that we do life together, and that's a huge by the way, we do life together, we not just... (sighs) I need some help. I'm trying to, do, do you know how powerful, do you know how significant, many of you come today, many of you come today as Christians, 
and you're part of this new community covenant church and the way you think of preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, it's good. You're saying, you know what? I know the gospel. I've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and so therefore I'm going to share it with my coworkers. Blah, blah, blah. And you even furthermore, even to the extent of, you know what? We are a gospel community. We do mission ministry together. Do you understand and recognize that the way that you relate to people of other cultures, other race, other class, other soul standing, the way that you relate and the relationship that you are in with people that are totally different from you in itself proclaims the good news of what Jesus has done. So my question to you practically is this. Has the gospel penetrated your heart and your life? Okay, let me be blunt. Is there anything within you, anything within you, that smacks of racial, cultural, elitist superiority, I'm better than you, or I think I'm more aligned than you because of your race, your ethnicity? Is there anything within you that smacks of that? Is there any attitude, any thoughts, any words, any jokes, any, anything within you that says, I one hand believe that the gospel is true, but on the other hand, I really don't. Because here's the thing. If you are truly embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ on the cross that says we are saved and saved by grace alone, it's not our works, it's not our merit, it's not our pedigree, it's not our race, ethnicity, it's not anything we've done but by grace, by grace and grace. Can you possibly be arrogant? Can you possibly be elitist? Can you possibly look down on someone of another culture race? Is that possible? Church, answer, is that possible? So here's the thing. See, I, we talk about this, and, we, and, and we've talked about it in the last couple of weeks. See, I'm not going to just sit here and assume that all of us, because we come to this multicultural community, don't wrestle inwardly our thought life or even some of our actions. We don't wrestle with this truth. And the reason why we wrestle with this truth is because we have not allowed the gospel to penetrate. Why did Antioch be Antioch? Because the gospel comes and penetrates their hearts. And there are a group of people that are going, I don't find my identity in who I am. I don't find my worth in who I am. I don't find my ultimate significance in my red ethnicity. I am part of a new humanity, a new creation that God is doing. And I'm ultimately, more than anything else, I'm ultimately a child of God. I'm ultimately a daughter of God. I'm ultimately a son of God. That's where I find my worth. That's where I find my identity. Because unless you have that, unless you have that, and you fall back on my culture, fall back on my race, fall back on whatever else, elitism, racism, prejudice. And take it a step further. A sign that there is Holy Spirit, social, Holy Spirit, and movement of Holy Spirit in a group of people like this is that there's social healing. What do I mean? People from different cultures, race, ethnicity, they go beyond just Sunday. Hey, how's it going? And all of a sudden, people start getting into deep, powerful, life-changing relationships. All of a sudden, people start looking around going, you know what? If it had not been for the gospel, you and I would have never met. Like, we wouldn't even be in the same room together, frankly. But the gospel of Jesus Christ come and leveled any sense of pride, arrogance, and, and humbled me to the core. Do you ever find yourself shocked and surprised that you're friends with somebody because you're going, man, there's no way five years ago you and I would have been friends? What does that mean? You guys are smiling. Is that happening? Is that happening to you? Is, is that happening to me? That's my question. Is that happening to us? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, how, how, is, how is the world going to see us embodying the gospel of Jesus Christ unless they're kind of radical, radical? They're going beyond Sundays. I mean, somebody, by the way, said, Peter, whenever you talk like that, I feel like I feel nervous because, you know what, I take very much pride in my culture. And so I feel like you're talking about if we become a Christian, we become our culture. There's no culture. Like, we all just kind of 
You know, it's the whole when somebody comes up and says, I don't see you as an Asian. I see you as Peter. I'm t- Listen, I know you mean well. I know you're being sincere, but check this out. That's not the gospel. Do you know that? That's the good news. Do you know what the gospel says? Gospel says, gospel says I made Peter who he is. He's Korean with that family back and with that culture. And I'm going to use him for that. Isn't that good news? But at the same time, it says, Peter, but you don't find your ultimate identity in your Koreanness. You find your ultimate identity in the fact that you are part of a new humanity. There's a new identity being forged. Oh, guys, can I, just, can I just be blunt? Is there anybody in this city that you look down on? Is there anybody in this city that you can't love? Is there anybody in this city you just tolerate? Is there anybody in this city because of their sexual orientation, because their race, because their ethnicity? Is there anybody in this city that you cannot love a hard time loving? You have not embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can we just be honest this morning? Because we as a church community can't move forward in this if we're not. Bible says in Ephesians, maintain the bond of peace. Maintain it. Don't create it. Don't manage. Maintain it. Why? It's a gift. Jesus Christ has done the work. It's a gift. He says, maintain it. How do we maintain it? Recognize. Look at all of us in here. Why are we here? Why are we all here? Why do we gather here? Because we have the same race, culture, ethnicity, social, cleansing. Why are we here? We are all here because we said we're not going to bow down to those things. Those aren't going to be the altars in which you bow down to. We all bow down to one king, and his name is Jesus. And that makes you a brother, and that makes you a sister. And there's growing within me, and there's growing within you. Love. Love. (laughs) Is that happening here? Is that happening here as the Spirit of God moves? (sighs) Amen. Let's finish up. <laughs> Verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. You got to listen. The disciples in Antioch have never met the brothers in Jerusalem. They never will. They hear about the need in Jerusalem. And the disciples in Antioch, brand new Christians, decide we need to be generous. We need to take care of the brothers and disciples in Jerusalem. And so a sign and a move of the Holy Spirit in a community, in a body, is not just that there's social healing and that walls are being broken down between people of different class, race, ethnicity, but there's also incredible generosity. There's incredible sacrificial service. There's incredible outpouring of their resources. And this wasn't just an isolated incident. We know that one of the reasons why, again, Christianity was so powerful in the words of Julian, the third century Roman emperor who hated Christianity and wanted to wipe it off from the face of the earth. He writes a letter to his friend and he says, this is their success. Their charity lies not only in their care for their poor, but they take care of our poor as well. The early church, you guys, was radically sacrificial in giving. You ask the question, why? Again, can I, a gospel, 
gospel. I love it. The gospel. <laughs> I thought about it all day. The gospel. Why? The gospel comes to Antioch and boom! Radical, radical service, radical generosity. Why? Let me just say, when you are ultimately blown away by the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, and you see the generosity of God in Christ, the generosity of God in Christ, sending his son and giving his all, and you and I embrace that, see that, blown away by the truth, the Bible says that the inevitable result of being impacted by the generosity of God is that we will also then return, be generous with other people. The reason why we're stingy and not generous is not because ultimately of other things. It's because we have not been blown away and melted by the gospel, the generosity of God. Well, why weren't they afraid? Not just generous. What made them go out into the streets when people threw their families out because they were plagues and they knew that if they lived together, they could die? What made Christians go, I don't care if I die? Come on! What made them bring these brothers and sisters into their homes from the streets? They weren't afraid of death. You know why they weren't afraid of death? Resurrection. Doctrine and resurrection. I love this. Doctrine. Do you understand the doctrine of resurrection, Sven? Because you know what the doctrine of resurrection says? Doctrine of resurrection goes to the heart of why we're not more sacrificial, why we're not more radical, why we're afraid. Doctrine of resurrection gets to that. Because here's the thing. Why do we not give more? Because we go, this is the only money I'm going to have. Why do we not spend our lives in radical service? This is the only life I'm going to have. But what if you knew that this isn't the only life you're ever going to have? What if you knew this isn't the only world you're ever going to have? What if you knew that the resurrection, doctrine of the resurrection says there's another world coming, a material world that Christ is going to restore. And anything we lose in this world is going to be given back to you. So you don't have to be afraid of death. There's resurrection. You don't have to be afraid of giving. There's resurrection. You don't have to be afraid of taking risks. There's resurrection. How much more radically generous would you be if you knew this is the only money I'm ever going to have, only life I'm ever going to have? People in Antioch, early disciples, resurrection. This life isn't the only life I'm going to have, so who cares if I die? This world isn't the only world we're ever going to have, so I'm going to give my all for it. Has that happened to you? Has that happened to me? Do you believe in the resurrection? Radical service. Radical service. Let uh, Let me add some practical points, and then we're done. Three practical points for you to walk away with from Acts chapter 11. Questions. Are you living out the gospel? One more time. I'm just going to one more time, okay? One more time. Have you embraced the gospel in such a way that people you might have looked upon despise, people that you say, I can never be in community with them. I can never love them. Have you been so emboldened by the gospel of Jesus Christ that that is happening to you like these people? How many of you guys know Nathan Albert? Nathan Albert is a cool guy. He's a great guy. He's a friend of mine. And the reason I love him is because he has a huge heart for the homosexual community. Just an unbelievable heart for the homosexual community. Okay? And he wants to reach out to them. Nathan is in a small group up on the north side. It's a small group that meets once a week to discuss the issue of homosexuality. Let me tell you who's in this small group. This group, Peter, is called Living in the Tension. See, this is Christian life. I, I love it. Two seminarians who are both straight. A lesbian couple who have both been kicked out of a Christian university. Two mothers. One has a gay son. The other has a transgender son. Both are in relationship with their sons, completely loving. Two gay men. Both who attend church. One ex-gay, now married with family, works for a gay ministry. One straight young woman who decided to move to Chicago from Idaho and has attended a new community. 
one extremely conservative Christian, straight male. Oh, it gets better. By now, you ought to be going, how is that possible? Precisely the gospel. You know who else is in this group? I'll tell you who else is in the group. A gentleman who was raped by a priest, became overly homophobic, anti-gay, then came out, hated the church because he was kicked out because he was gay, and now is reconciling his faith, desiring to be a priest himself. He has forgiven the priest who raped him. How is this possible? Our answer as Christians is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how it's possible. My question to you and me is this. Is this happening to you? Are you so radically humbled and blown away the gospel that you are in community with people that you look around going, how in the world are we in community together? And the world looks at that and says, what is that? And you can say, say it with me, the gospel. The gospel. The gospel. I am saved by grace and grace alone. We're equally sinners. The foot of the cross is level. There is room. Come. Second question. Oh, sorry. Can I just give a quote by Henry Nouwen that was just so powerful? It's not up there. Everybody look up here. You want community? You want Antioch gospel? He said, Henry Nouwen, community is where the community is the place where the person we least want to live with always lives. Community, Christian community, is the place where the person we least want to live with always lives. That's how the world will see. What is that? What is that? What is that? What is that? The gospel. Two. Are you willing to stay at Antioch? Okay, I got to give my pitch. I got to give my pitch. Okay? You all know where it's coming, right? What do I mean? Antioch, major city. Major city. Antioch will be this profound, influential city that will impact that region for Jesus. And what am I always saying? I'm always saying what? The city is an important, critical place for the spread of the gospel, right? Here's the thing about Barnabas, though, and why he put it that way. Barnabas didn't have to come to Antioch. And he certainly didn't have to stay. All the other believers, they were spread out and scattered, right, all over, so that they could, but Barnabas, one of these people who said, oh, I'm going to choose to go to Antioch, and furthermore, he came, and he stayed at Antioch, a large cosmopolitan metropolitan city. Paul comes. As a result, Antioch becomes, check this out, the mission-sending agency for the first Christian journey and the impact that it would have as they lay their hands on Paul and Barnabas. What am I saying? Did you come into the city? Wanted to stay two years, then stay? Say it with me. CR, trained well. If you want to stay four years initially, stay how long? Eight. And here's the thing. If you're someone who's saying, you know what? I have to move because I got another job. Can you please do this for me? Can you please be a kingdom person? Can you please make sure that if you move from the city and you go somewhere else, you do not take a job because you pay more money, but you take a job because it's there that you can do the most good. 
If you decide to move somewhere else, can you please make sure that you go, not because the weather is good, not because there's people that you like, not because of any of those reasons, even though they're important, but can you please make sure that when you move and you decide to go to another place, be a kingdom person and says, God, send me to where I can do the most good for you. And when you do, we will hug you, we will kiss you, and we will bless you. Lyra and Matt, you guys are going to a place where you can do the most good. Third, are you using your gift of encouragement? <laughs> okay, wait, wait, this. okay. Um, can I make a confession? Um, there's one spiritual gift that I don't have. Can you guess what that is? Really? Really? What do you think? Quiet. Man, you made my day today. I want you to know, Byron, you and I should go get a beer after this. You, you made my day. Did you guys hear that? What spiritual gift do I not have? He goes, quietness. <laughs> no, I do not have that spiritual gift. If it was a spiritual gift, I would not have. No, spiritual gift I don't have. I went with the spiritual gift that I don't have is it, it, encouragement. Can y'all tell? I don't have the spiritual gift of encouragement. Romans chapter 2, 12, verse 6 says, if it's encouraging, spiritual gifts he's talking about, Paul says, then let him encourage. I don't have the spiritual gift of encouragement. You know, I, I have the spiritual gift of exhortation and prophetic and you need to do better and all this stuff, but I don't have the gift of encouragement, right? And everybody in our church knows that's why they laugh. But one of the things that is most profoundly influential for me as a pastor has been being blessed by people with the spiritual gift of encouragement. Ironically enough, that Sunday that I preached a sermon on homosexuality and the church's response, this was about a year and a half ago, we did a sermon series. I went home and I was completely depressed because I felt like I was just really harsh on the church, you know? I was like, you, you're bad, you're too bad. I just yelled at everybody that Sunday, you know? Just, and there was like a handful of people who were like, yay. Everybody else was just like, I just, I just yelled, I screamed, oh, no. and I just went home. And, I, and when I feel like all I did was just yell and scream and just make people feel I just I just feel terrible so I went home and I put you know I was in a fetal position and blankets over my head I'm like God I got to get out of this because I can't just continue to like yell at people that night I got an email I got a number of emails actually but I got an email from a young lady in our church can I just read because she is somebody I believe has a gift of encouragement she says this I just want to thank you for this morning thank you for telling me things as they are even things that I don't want to hear. No sugarcoating. Peter, that's why I'm at New Community, you know. Because you deal with real issues, but you do it in a godly, biblical way. Not trying to please anyone but the Lord. I appreciate the fact that you don't treat your congregation like customers. No, I'd be a terrible businessman. You don't like the food? Why not? I'm sorry. He's our dishwasher. I don't know what he was doing up here asking for how you like the food. <laughs> you don't cheat your congregation like customers. I appreciate that. And she says, I'm thankful to God for bringing me to new community because he has used your sermons to show me, and she says, his grace. 
See, that's the last thing I associate. That's why I felt so bad because I'm somebody who's on journey and I want people to learn for grace and I felt like I was nothing but gracious. And she says, no, this morning particularly, you reminded me of grace. I know that God brought me to the new community for a reason. Thank you for listening. And I'll pray this week that God uses next sermon. You know what this did for me? Let me. It reminded me that every single one of us, we have areas of brokenness in us and we all need healing. I don't care who you are. And that brokenness causes us to do things you know, so the next day I'm at Starbucks, right? And the girl that's making the coffee, a little too slow for my taste. Mm-hmm. Normally I'm like, Come. you know, but I sat there and I took a pause and I looked at her and I said, you know what? Um, who knows what's going on in her family life? Who knows what's happened to her this week? Who, I don't even begin to know her story. So what kind of an idiot are you standing here casting all this judgment on her, you know? So I got the coffee and I said, hey, thank you. Thank you. Our church desperately needs encouragers. We desperately need men and women like a Barnabas. We have a group in our church called the Barnababes. <laughs> it's a group of women, anonymous. I don't even know who they are. Michael, do you know who they are? I don't want to know who they are. Barnababes. There's a group of women. I'll show up sometime to church office and I'll see a card and some brownies. And I don't even like sugar. I'll show up to somewhere, and, and, and I'll just sit there and go, honestly, I get really, really, really emotional. As your pastor, I am exhorting you. If you have the spiritual gift of encouragement, we need you to exercise it. If you do not have the spiritual gift, you need to pray for it. The Bible says pray for it. And if you don't think you do, but you do, We need to confirm it in each other. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we praise you for this day. Church, as we are, I want to give you just a couple minutes, uh, some space for you. Can you? Can you just meditate on the three questions that were asked? Three very different questions. And perhaps the Holy Spirit, perhaps the Holy Spirit will grab one of these and begin to work in your heart. First is, what is the gospel according to you? Will you just be honest and and have enough courage to examine your heart, your relationships, look around the community around you and ask, Has the gospel of Jesus Christ so penetrated my heart that it has radically transformed my relationships? Are there people that I'm just blown away that we're doing life? Are there people that you have a hard time tolerating, loving because of various things? Do you need the gospel? The gospel to come, to break you and to work in your heart. What is the gospel according to you? Second, some of you are in the process of trying to make decisions about where to live, where to go. Have you considered the possibility of staying at Antioch? Have you considered the possibility of praying more than anything else? God, I want to be where I can do the most good. Not make money, connections. And third, calling on all encouragers. Write that letter. Write that email. Make that phone call. 
You're a vital part of this church. We need you. Give you a moment just to meditate on that and pray, and then the worship team will lead us in final closing song. Will you join hands with the person standing next to you because this benediction is a corporate one and I want to do this together. You child of God, you child of God are called by him, not just an individual relationship, but a relationship of community. We haven't been saved for a solo event. We've been saved to, to be a community that would embody and demonstrate the gospel together. And ask community as you go forth today, remember that he is with you. Remember that he is for you. Remember that he has poured out his grace upon grace upon grace in your life. Let that be your strength. Let that be your fuel. Let that be the very life that would energize you to live for his kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, you guys. We'll see you back here next Sunday.